Wild West Podcast proudly presents Trail to Medicine Lodge. Even before the Civil War, the War Department had determined the cheapest and most satisfactory method of supplying the forts on the plains was through contracts with privately owned freighting companies. By 1865, the Secretary of War reported to Congress that the troops operating on the Great Western Plains are supplied principally by trains of the Quartermaster's Department from depots established on the great routes of overland travel to which contractor conveys depot supplies. Generally, heavy wagons pulled by 10 oxen were used and each was capable of hauling 5,500 pounds each. Lighter wagons, drawn by mules or horses, were also used, and were especially effective in the winter months when light snow covered the grass. The year was 1867. The Civil War was over. More and more people moved west to start new lives. General Philip H. Sheridan took command of the U.S. forces in the west, He promised to bring peace to the plains by destroying the buffalo. The buffalo was sacred to the Indian. The Indians lived off the buffalo. Kill the buffalo and you kill the Indians, the general said. The Native Americans went on the warpath. They fought to protect their way of life. They fought to keep their lands. Governor Samuel J. Crawford of Kansas journeyed to Washington and urged greater federal protection. A peace commission was sent to counsel with the hostiles, and this meeting resulted in the Medicine Lodge Treaty. The Kiowas, Comanches, and Apaches of the Plains pledged themselves to a reservation of 3 million acres between the Washita and Red Rivers and the 98th and 100th Meridian. People back east wanted to stop the war with the Plains Indians. The railroad owners wanted to lay track to the Pacific Ocean. But the railroad was at a standstill because the fighting got in the way. President Andrew Johnson heard about the trouble in the Plains, he formed a special peace commission to make peace with the Indians. He wanted to remove Indians so that whites could settle their lands. Many a dignitary discussed for several months about a meeting location to speak about peace. The Indians chose an area known as Medicine Lodge. Medicine Lodge is located in Kansas. The waters of Elm Creek and Medicine River joined together there. The Kiowa went there once a year to bathe in the healing waters of the river. The Indians annually renewed their medicine at the Sacred Lodge. Medicine Lodge was a safe location, as there were no railroads or nearby white settlements. It was many miles to the nearest army post. The Indians felt safe from surprise attacks from white men. Over 5,000 Indians from five different tribes came to the meeting. The Kiowa, Comanche, Kiowa Apache, Cheyenne and Arapaho all came. There were many white men there, too. The 7th Cavalry came to protect the white men. Some Indians came because they heard that there was free food and gifts. A week later, on October 28, 1867, the Cheyennes and Arapahoes came to terms. More than 2,000 Cheyennes received presents, a fresh supply of clothing, blanket and ammunition, plus the government's promise to provide $20,000 annually for their benefit over a period of 25 years. The Indians also retained the privilege of hunting buffalo south of the Arkansas. In return, the Cheyennes agreed not to impede railroad construction or restrain overland transportation, never to molest the whites, and to move to a new, 
4,300,000-acre reservation bounded by the 37th parallel and the Cimarron and Arkansas rivers. The following story is based on the true accounts of Billy Dixon, who was hired on as a freighter to take supplies to Medicine Lodge Treaty Site. My name is Billy Dixon. I was born in Ohio County, West Virginia, on September 25, 1850. I became an orphan at the age of 12 and was sent to live with my uncle, Thomas Dixon, who lived at the time in Ray County, Missouri. In the fall of 1864, I took a job working as a woodcutter along the Missouri River and later went for a government freight contractor in Kansas as a bullwhacker and mule skinner. I enjoyed my life as a bullwhacker and knew it to be short-lived as the surveyors there were seen along the trails staking out across the plains, a path for railways. In those days, I worked with a particular breed of sweat-soaked plainsmen who were noted as red-shirted brigands, jailbirds, and desperados. I possessed little during these times, a bowie knife, revolver, and a bullwhip. My salary was less than $25 a month. I walked most of the time. When there was mud, I waited. When there was rain, I got drenched. My bed was always on the ground under my wagon. My clothes, even when cleaned, were stained with mud, dust, sweat, grease, and tobacco juice. If there was one thing in common between us bullwhackers and mule skinners, it was our bullwhip. The bullwhip was our badge of recognition. It did not take me long to learn how to snap my 20-foot-long, heavy-braided rawhide whip. I could crack my bullwhip overhead to inspire the dumbest ox or most obstinate mule and flick a fly off the ear of any animal without touching it. I quit the job as a bullwhacker in 1866 and went to work on the McCall family farm near Leavenworth, Kansas. While working on the farm for about a year, I went to school. I did not like schooling much, so I returned to doing what I was good at, and that was hunting and trapping. When the spring of 1867 came around, I was offered my old job on the farm, and Mrs. McCall, a kind, good woman, used all her influence to get me to accept it. But my head was filled with dreams of adventure in the far west. Always I could see the west holding its hands toward me and beckoning and smiling. It was during that year I met up with a government train master named Simpson, who was hiring men to go out with a train that was to be shipped by railroad as far as Fort Harker. I forgot all that Mrs. McCall had said to me about staying on the farm and hired on with Simpson. Returning to the farm, I told my good friends the McCalls goodbye. Kansas Pacific Railroad had now been built as far west as Fort Harker. All our wagons and harnesses were new, and these, together with the mules, were loaded onto cars and shipped to Fort Harker. We went into camp close to the fort. In this outfit were a good many raw men, while the mules were known as shavetails, which meant wild, unbroken mules. Only a few had been harnessed and driven. By this time, I could handle the team with as much ease as a man could. In my lot were two or three gentle mules. I have cause to remember one old fellow in particular, upon whose back I afterward had one of the most exciting rides of my life. We put in ten days breaking the shavetails. It was a scene of hilarious excitement, and not without danger, 
as often mules would be kicking and bucking in harness with might and main, while others would be running away. At such times, the drivers had no time to pay attention to other things. While in this camp, cholera began raging at Fort Harker, which struck terror to many who stood in no fear of other dangers to life. Many of our men deserted, and two died of the dreaded disease. I witnessed the death of one of our men, Frankham, and shall never forget his agony. Men who were apparently in the full vigor of health at sunrise lay dead by night. The authorities kept the number of dead secret as much as possible. The burials were usually at night. This epidemic of death extended from Fort Harker, Kansas, to Fort Union, New Mexico. Its origin was said to have been amongst the Buffalo soldiers of the 10th Cavalry, which had shipped from the east to the western frontier. Now all this excitement did not bother me a bit. I did not think much about it. The doctors made regular calls at our camp every day, and we were placed on a strict diet. We were forbidden to eat any kind of vegetable or fresh meat. The disease ran its course in about three weeks. The government here issued a new lot of arms and ammunition to us. The distribution of the weapons looked warlike and was incredible to my liking. The guns were the Sharps carbine, carrying a linen cartridge, with which was used the army hat cap. In addition, we were given a six-shooter Remington cap and ball pistol. These were the very latest arms. A few days later, orders were given to load the wagons with government supplies for Fort Hayes, Kansas, 90-odd miles west of Fort Harker. Our shavetail mules were under reasonably good control by this time, and we got under headway without much trouble. On this trip, we saw many Indian warriors at a distance, but did not come in contact with them. I was eager for the fray and my lack of experience, and was disappointed when I saw the war party disappear over a long ridge, without my having been able to test my marksmanship and my new Sharps rifle. Buffaloes were seen in numbers, and I was lucky enough to kill several on my own hook. We reached Fort Hayes in about four days, and returned to Fort Harker at about the same time. Fort Hayes was garrisoned mostly with buffalo soldiers. No buildings had been erected at that time, and we unloaded our supplies in the open prairie, where guards had been stationed to protect them. The fort was located on Big Creek, on low-lying land along the creek. The timber for the buildings was being hauled from Fort Harker. Our next trip was to Fort Wallace with government supplies, the distance being considerably greater than from Fort Harker to Fort Hayes. We always had an escort of soldiers, as there was constant danger of meeting an Indian war party. Along in October 1867, while several government trains were at Fort Harker waiting for orders, we were notified to make ready to accompany a party of peace commissioners. These commissioners had been empowered to meet with several of the Central Plains tribes of Kansas in the southwest at Medicine Lodge, Kansas. Several other trains, including our wagons, were to accompany this expedition. I was eager to go, but as no orders had been given to my outfit, I was fearful that I might be left behind. Here was the opportunity I had long looked for, to see a big gathering of Indians close at hand without danger of getting scalped. I had almost given up in despair when an orderly galloped up from headquarters, saying that two more wagons must be sent forward at once. 
It was now six o'clock in the evening. Simpson, our wagon master, approached me and said, Billy, you and Frecky get ready at once and go into Fort Harker. Frecky, who was my age, drove the wagon next to mine and became a good friend. I sometimes became dismayed at the way my friend Frecky looked at life. Frecky, like me, had a strong sense of morality. Yet he was different, because he would always think bad things would happen if he took a chance or two. As a rule, nothing ever greatly excited me. But I am bound to admit that I was now going round and round with the idea of adventure. I became so overjoyed at my good luck. I was now offered the opportunity to become a true freighter on the frontier. With all of this excitement within me came an exuberant stirring, which nearly caused me to be left behind. I ran as quickly as possible to where my mules were eating their grain, and without halting, jerked the harness from the rack to throw it onto the lead mule. With both feet, this mule kicked me squarely in the small of the back. I dropped as if I'd been struck with an axe, and found myself partially paralyzed, scarcely able to move. Recovering slightly, I regained my feet, but found I could not straighten my body. I was game, however. Calling Fricky, I told him what had happened and asked him to help me harness my mules and not say a word to anybody about my being hurt. Were it known that I'd been kicked, I might be sent to the hospital. Fricky, noticing my dilemma, was a good fellow. He did not give heedance to my condition, and I was soon on my way to the fort. By the next morning, I was in reasonably good shape. Dusk had come by the time we reached Fort Harker. Just one mile away northward, across the river, stood Fort Harker. Looking like a city with a row of tents dwindling to a size of headstones, laid with regularity by an experienced custodian. A tall, strong flagstaff towered above all the buildings. Upon the flagstaff, a beautiful American flag could be seen waving and flapping protectively from its peak. My name is Koji. And I'm Michelle. And this is the Japanese America Podcast. So this is where we look at all things Japanese American. We will bring alive the history, culture, and people that make up this diverse community. In this month's episode, we'll examine Koji's unique family history. To help bring this story alive, we brought on actor and comedian Derek Mew. He was reported to be extremely pro-Japanese and anti-American in sentiment. Her husband was taken into custody by the military authorities under a warrant authorized by the Secretary of War, who was his enemy of the United States. He was my grandfather on my dad's side. To hear more stories about Japanese America, you can listen to this podcast anywhere you normally download your podcast. A low ridge intervening between the fort and our camp prevented us from seeing the garrison move about. Along the road, which ascended the hill, came trooping some cavalry advancing towards us. They halted at the river and allowed their horses to drink, and then retired with the same steady gait and discipline as they moved forward. Our camp was situated on the brow of the hill. I looked across the river and into the fort, a once-neglected place only distinguishable from its two solitary adobe chimneys. The two chimneys, which last winter saw a group of banished soldiers begging for the friendly warmth of their modest hearths. The tents of the artillerists flanked the north side of the battery, and therefore were parallel with the other tents. Eastward were ranged the ambulances, ten in number. These, while on the march, contained the commissioners and members of the press. The whole camp was flanked at the eastern end by the tents of the commissioners. 
At the west end of our camp were the tents of three companies of the 7th Cavalry under Major Allen's command. The wagons of their regiment were clustered near. It was here where we loaded the green, red, blue blankets, gaudily printed calico, blue cloth, workhouse hats, beads, and silver medals for the friendly chiefs we intended to visit. The last two wagons were loaded with ammunition for a small Gatling gun. Not desirable equipment on Indian peace expeditions in those days. During our late evening loading of supplies, we were exposed to the everlasting shrieking wind. In a moment's notice, the fierce whistling gusts of wind threatened us momentarily to give way before its power. A wind so strong it swayed us like drunken beings. The gusts flapped around us, beating our wagon covers like human arms. This sudden, strong easterly wind was like an American simoom of hot, dry, dust-laden wind blowing in from the desert comes down upon our exposed spot without warning, leveling every forward object to the ground. It was in these gusts of wind we loaded our supplies and then drove about three miles to camp on the Smoky Hill. Frecky and I made camp close to where the commissioners were holding council. We could see them outside a large tent sitting around a fire pit. They fronted this tent in a social circle, even while the wind made such a terrible racket. So Fricky and I decided to listen in on the great philosophers of our time. With sudden surprise, we heard footsteps coming from the dark corner of the wagon, to which we had claimed as an onlooking audience. Who goes there? Fricky shouted. None other than me, replied a voice from the dark shadows of the night. What might be your name? I asked. Stanley replied the visitor, as he walked closer to our seating arrangement. My name is Henry M. Stanley and I'd like to join you as my business is with this council from which you are admiring. What is your business? I inquired. I'm a journalist. A reporter, you might say, continued Stanley in his English accent. I'm acting as a special correspondent for the St. Louis Daily Missouri Democrat. May I bring some light on the subjects before you? Sure, sure, I said. Have a seat and tell us what you know. By the way, this is my friend Fricky. Good evening, Fricky, responded Stanley with a curious glance. What an unusual name, Fricky. It sounds to be of German origin. I, on the other hand, am English, continued Stanley. I was born John Rowlands from Wales. With serious composure, Stanley explained his story on how he came to America. I emigrated to the United States in 1859 at age 18, explained Stanley. I disembarked at New Orleans and became friends by accident with Henry Hope Stanley, a wealthy trader. I was in need of work and saw Mr. Stanley sitting on a chair outside his store. I asked him if he had any job openings. He confirmed to me that indeed he had a job opening and wished he had a son. The inquiry led to a job and a close relationship between us. So I became Stanley instead of my given name of Rowlands. What are you, a Yankee? asked Fricky. For if you are, I'll have no Yankees in my company. Well, sir, replied Stanley in a polite and direct tone, I can say I served on both the Union and Confederate sides in the Civil War, and then traveled to Asia Minor as a newspaper reporter. That is where I began my ventures as a reporter. Shortly thereafterwards, I found myself in the spring following the unsuccessful campaign of Major General Winfield S. Hancock. 
That is what brings me here today, as General Hancock stirred up quite the hornet's nest when he burned the abandoned Cheyenne village in early April of this year. Stanley took a seat on a nearby log and looked over in the direction of the Peace Commission. If you are curious about the men who sat at a distance from us, I can enlighten you on their membership to the Commission, said Stanley. You have N.G. Taylor, Commissioner of Indian Affairs, John B. Henderson, United States Senator, General W.L. Harney, John B. Seaborn, General A.H. Terry, S.F. Tappan, and General C.C. Auger. We will take first Harney, who is now bending forward, seated on his camp stool, his broad face marked with the traces of busy years. His kindly blue eyes beams brighter now as he is engaged in an animated discussion. He lifts a forefinger to emphasize a point. When he stands erect, he towers above all like Saul, the chosen of Israel. It does not require a remarkable degree of acuteness to see that underneath that calm, smiling, the venerable exterior of Harney, there lies an extraordinary power of vitality and passion not quite dead. A godly man, a tried soldier, and a gentleman. Opposite Harney, you will see another Missourian of Pike County, John B. Henderson, known here as Senator Henderson. He is the businessman of the commission. He is forever endeavoring to sift evidence concerning the Indians we intend to visit. One of forcible utterance in speech, possessed of dogged perseverance to obtain light upon a dubious subject, never forgetful of Western interests, a cool head, courteous in deportment, patient, generous to all, eager ever to oblige, and always thoughtful of the wants of others. Any points that are necessary for publication, we all feel an inclination to ask Senator Henderson about. On the Senator's right sits John B. Sanborn, a general who has served with some distinction on many a challenging field. A talkative, good-natured, and pleasant gentleman, fond of good living and good company, an air of bonhomie all about him. Pleasant to converse with, free of access, and pretty thoroughly posted on Indian matters. Those are the prominent points of Sanborn. The general has been selected on account of his tact in business to superintend the commission's movements. On the senator's left sits Colonel Tappan of Colorado, an agreeable companion, always smiling but a gentleman of few words. He is also very well acquainted with Indian affairs. And there is Commissioner N.G. Taylor, the president of the commission, a man of large brain, full of philanthropic ideas relative to the poor Indian. He is undoubtedly earnest in his opinions. Formerly a Methodist minister, he has turned his attention to secular matters, devoting his life to improving the American Aboriginal's social status. And lastly, there is Terry, the gallant and genial. His praises and good deeds have been recorded by nobler pens than mine. Therefore, I will not expand the oratory of explanation of his character. The country remembers him. Now for Sherman, who was mysteriously absent. A telegram recalled him to Washington. Lieutenant General William T. Sherman had been appointed a member of the commission by President Johnson. When Sherman was ordered to Washington, he was replaced by Colonel Christopher C. Auger.